Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and I am very excited today because I am joined by Dr. Adolph Brown, who, along with Ellie Wentworth, co-hosts the new ABC Unscripted series, The Parent Test. Now, Dr. Brown is a clinical psychologist, master teacher, and mental health keynote speaker, and the founder, president, and CEO of the Business and Education Leadership Authority. Doc Brown, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, especially because not even just aligned with the work, just I have a, a passion for helping young people myself because we've all been a young person and, and, and confused, right? <laughs> That's yeah. right. Right. So it's like we ha- we owe it to uh, the new generation to bring some of our, our knowledge uh, forward for them to help them have an easier time. So to begin with, congrats on the show. The parent well, thank test. you. Thank You're you. You're very welcome. Yes, of course. And I would love if you would share a little bit about that show and what you'd like audiences to gain from it. Sure, Corey. Corey, it's actually one of the most value added television programs today. And I would say that if I wasn't a part of it, one of the reasons I am a part of it is because it's a show that's informative, it's entertaining, and there's quite a bit of explosion. So, Corey, what we have, we have 12 families that have allowed us to put their parenting styles under a microscope. And for a parent to do that, for a family to do that, it means that they they hold that all really closely to their chest. So the other parents, they take turns pretty much looking at each other's styles. And what we do, Ali and I, we actually give them a series of challenges to see if their parenting styles will actually stand up to these challenges. So like I said, it my hope is that when people watch, they'll be able to develop a toolkit, a parenting toolkit, but also it, it's time for a national conversation around this topic. We don't talk enough about it because it's so personal and we don't want to be scrutinized. And unlike most things in life, uh, you don't know how well of a job you've done as a parent <laughs> for many, many years. <laughs> right, yeah. Either your kid will tell you one day over Christmas after one, <laughs> one glass too many of wine or yeah, exactly. Or the letter I have them write from my therapy office. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. Well, listen, I have to tell you, know, and we'll get into that later. Uh, therapy is a big deal because, you know, I, I really identified with something that you talk about when you do the two bag conversation, the, the, the backpack. Yeah. So the two backpacks, uh, we'll get into that because that the therapy thing is so tied to that. But, you know, you mentioned it being so personal. It's funny. It's just this morning I was on Instagram and there was a funny video that I think Viola Davis shared of like a black grandmom trying to get her little granddaughter just to admit or not if she had just went wee wee in her little um, uh, pull up, her pull ups. And a little girl was going all around and about, you know, like kind of avoiding the question until uh, grandma jokingly picked up a, a spatula and said, I'm going to ask one more time. And did you pee in your thing? And she said, yes. And it was a joke. They laughed it off. And, but in the thread underneath, it became 
oh, they're awful parents. I can't believe that she threatened her child. And, and it became exactly what you just said. All these parents started arguing over what was really sort of an innocuous video, I think. Yes, yes. But they took it personal. And yeah, <laughs> and, and and you know, and and parenting is not only personal. There are very many um, cultural aspects to parenting as well. I have different issues parenting my eight children in in the United States of America than than some of my non. Uh, African-American friends. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think uh, until you really explain that to people who are not African-American, they don't know that conversation that black moms very often have about how their children have to go out into the same world that white kids go out into, especially for me. I was getting that conversation from five years old. Yes. Yes. And and, and what happens is we are, we're all as parents concerned about our children. We're concerned about their safety, their whereabouts when they're not in our uh, presence. However, there's more of a concern for African-American parents that you return home because there's a society that doesn't always value your life. And and I say a society and not necessarily a society, but there are individuals in society that don't always value your life. So that conversation of about putting your hands on the steering wheel, both hands when you're stopped by law enforcement, looking in the eye, not making any sudden movements. And, you know, that could be the difference between you coming home or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I recall um, keeping, I, and this is like, you know, I mentioned again, five years old or so, I was already having the conversation before we go into the store, my hands Got to keep them, you know, like, don't look like I'm putting something in my pocket because I mean, people don't realize that this is literally how many young black children are indoctrinated into life in America. So, you know, I I love the honesty in those conversations. And on that same note, I also want to connect another dot that I saw you in a conversation about race and you said something really interesting. I would love for you to explain it. You said we should not always believe what our brain tells us. And when it comes to racism, and so please share a little bit about that. Definitely. So neuroscience is where I believe the conversation should start. It, and I try to start it where it's something where we all have in common, Corey, and that's we have a brain. However, most people believe that the brain was designed to help us to think, when in actuality, our brains were designed to help us not to have to think. The brain plays like this go fish game uh, or concentration. You know, it's an old game. So the brain finds a match for things. It stores it so that it can later help us predict the future. So that's not about correctness. That's about efficiency. So my, my favorite statement is don't believe everything you think because the brain gives us information based on matches and not necessarily information based on correctness. So the example I often use, if you saw the news last night and you saw someone who looked like me, if you don't reboot your brain as the supercomputer that it is, then your brain's going to do exactly what it does on autopilot. It's going to make you think I'm that person and, and cause you to treat me like that person. And if you saw that person from a side profile, that might cause you to treat me in a maladaptive manner. So I tell people, well, if you saw that television show last night, it wasn't me because I didn't do any interviews on television last night. I'm only doing this one with you today. So our brain is often wrong. I tell people this, Corey, have you ever been in a car accident? Luckily, no, I have not. Uh, Wonderful. But most people who have 
will tell you that there were parts of the accident that appear to happen in slow motion. So that's the brain kind of like flipping through its Rolodex trying to find a match. And the reason is, you know, and when it's looking for that match, those are like tiny little movie frames to make it look like it's in slow motion. And the reason the brain's actually flipping through the Rolodex, because that's an accident. It's not something that happens every day. So the brain doesn't have a quick reference for it. Did the accident happen in slow motion? Of course not. It just appeared to. So we can't believe everything we think. Okay, that is fascinating. Like, like I, I mean, I've never heard it explained that way. Just to your point, like, so the brain is just searching for something. The database has no reference for the car accident because you've never had that before. So it can't play the match game as it would if you were to say, oh, well, not to be really blatant. Oh, well, that's what a Klansman looks like. Or Ex- exactly. <laughs> in regards to race. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Wow. That is fascinating. Now, I mean, I think that when it comes to that too, then the conversation has to be had about why is that programming happening? So that's when I think the social consciousness comes into play. So what is the correlation between, you know, do we look for a remedy for that? Do we all try to adapt this theory and say, okay, as a society, we need to combat it. And then how do you do that? Well, so what I just explained was actually called implicit bias. It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. And what we do with that thing is what matters most. So where we have fallen short in the discussion is that we can't control all 400 billion messages that the brain gives us a second. And if we did that, we wouldn't have time to do anything else. But we can control (laughs) or or we can protect our mouths and our behaviors from our brain. When I say that, I ask people, how many of you would have friends if you said everything that was on your minds? You know, uh, how many of you still be in intimate relationships? Have you said everything that Just was like on your mind? <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah. <laughs> how many would still be employed if you said everything that was on your minds? So the first rule of thumb is if you think it's going to be offensive, you don't have to say it. Secondly, the brain also has this thing called confirmation bias. So the brain doesn't like to be wrong. It really does not. So the brain is looking to make sure that wherever I made that match, that it was a good match. Not it was correct, that it was a good match. So we have to challenge our brain. True thinking is actually very rare. So what the brain does in that the match game, it dichotomizes things. It makes it look extremely linear. Black, white, victim, oppressor. When in fact, we live the majority of our lives in the gray. And that's where the true thinking actually occurs. Mm. It's funny, too, because I think in my mind, oh, well, I'm completely very um, fair and, you know, I'm not biased about anything. And like, as you're saying, I'm like, no, I, I have work to do, too. Like, you know, I'm not exempt from any of this because, you know, I'm programmed the same way to respond to things and just make that quick match and then decide, like, that's how it is. And um, I think especially especially now in a very divisive time that we're in with, you know, it's almost like it's being fueled more. So what I'm getting from you, though, is that it boils down to accountability for us to just take more action, just more responsibility over our words and actions. Definitely. And, and, and to the degree that understanding what your word and actions can do. When we don't protect our mouths from our brains and something is said that's offensive to me as a black man, there's something I ask people, you know, who in the room has a roof? And, you know, sometimes people think I'm being facetious, but I'm not because there are 
homeless people in my audience. So I'd say, who has a roof? And the people that raise their hands, I'd say, how many of you had to replace your roof or repair it before your 30-year warranty expired and get a bunch of hands? And I said, well, you know what happened? Weathering. And I say weathering is premature aging. And that's what is caused to people when you don't protect your mouth and your behaviors from your biases. Weathering. Now, you could see it on your roof. You can see a missing shingle, but I'm not talking about, I'm talking about a more invasive weathering where it gets down in the wood and it rots and it's structural damage. That's what happens to black and brown people. Ulcers, hypertension, toxicity, trauma from weathering. Mm. Well, that same conversation is also aligned with the debate people continue to have over the First Amendment and somehow this distortion of the First Amendment, giving them the right to just say anything and, uh, you know, to get really academic with them. I'll, you know, I'll actually say, listen, I assure you that James Madison did not pen the First Amendment for you to go on Twitter and act a fool. Like, that's so not what he was in. Like, oh, that's, you know, the, that's, the, that's the best analogy I've heard. I mean, <laughs> I love it. And it's the Second Amendment one, too. Like, you know, we're talking about a musket versus an AR, right? <laughs> that's so right. These are very simple <laughs> things to dissect. But um, but people love to, you know, feel like the First Amendment somehow means they're free to say everything. And you know what? They really are. But to your point, where is the agency that you're supposed to have over your own self, not to be hurtful and harmful to others. That's where the, that's where the true change occurs. So the brain, again, an organ that tries to keep us alive. When we wake up, the brain searches the environment for an enemy, a threat. So the true agency occurs, Corey, when I get people not to first look at or for an enemy, but at first look at the inner me. Mm. And that's challenging for a lot of people. Most people would prefer that easy way of looking out and judging. Judging, you know, takes, you know, your eyes and your brains. To see someone as opposed to look at someone, it takes your eyes and your brain and your heart. So I constantly tell people, before you buy my book, no, I don't want you to do a book study, you know, as a remedy. I want you to do a heart study first. That's the agency. Yeah. Amen. And I think that ties into another one of your other platforms, which is teaching more student empathy yes. and how that correlates to anti-bullying. So just keep so bringing it back to just youth in general, like just all youth, no matter what their ethnic backgrounds, the bullying crisis is something that has just really risen in recent years. But you talk about building student empathy. So, so discuss the correlation between how that might remedy bullying. Well, first of all, if you can look in the mirror and love that reflection, the correlation is it's easier for you to love me. If you don't love yourself, I mean, you know, I think we have boiled it down to hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, yes. Well, well, where does that come from? That comes from the fact that if you don't love yourself, it's really likely that you won't love me. So it starts with that reflection, that initial self-esteem. And, you know, we... Any, all those self-words, self-esteem, self-concept, self-efficacy, all those things that you get from you and not the world. And, and if you skip over that, there's likely to be um, detriment, not only to you, but to your fellow humans. Hmm. I can speak to that, too, because for me, once I became more of a public speaker in this forum and leading conversations, uh, which has been going on for a few years now, I realized that I had to be a lot more responsible 
in what I was saying and putting out in the world, but it really was tied to how I, I want to be perceived. Well, I want people to perceive me as not being part of the problem, but part of the solution. And that's like, you know, so I had that sort of self-assessment of what I wanted to contribute to the world. Right. And that made me want to go out and to your point, like what I see at the end of the day, what was the job that I did? And was that something I'm proud of? Right. So it makes all the difference in the world. It does. And Corey, I think too, we have dwindled the definition, the definition of empathy to putting on someone else's shoes, mm-hmm. which is not the case. True empathy starts with you believing what someone is telling you. That's number one. Secondly, it involves self-reflection and introspection. Once you hear what I'm telling you, then you look with inside yourself to find similar emotions, similar feelings. And then and only then can you come close. Doesn't mean you will understand me, but you can come closer to understanding me at that point. So even empathy requires that self-work. People have always skipped over it. But now it's even more, you know, it's easier to skip over it now. You can Facebook your problems instead of facing your problems. So that, that, that's another issue. Yeah. Well, that's also tied to the, the, the problem that I think youth they're having today because there's that whole digital, that digital existence that we didn't have to contend with growing up where, oh my gosh, if there was like an Instagram when I was a kid, I don't even know what, you know, thank goodness there, <laughs> thank goodness there, <laughs> there wasn't, I would have been in trouble, but you know, it's it's a lot to contend with. And you're right, there's an instant gratification. People can hide anonymously behind their computers and say all kinds of things without feeling like they have any fear of repercussion. So it's a minefield for young people. But I know that you are very passionate about that particular demographic. And you do like, I think it was over uh, 100 different youth facilitator groups over one course of, over the course of one year. But tell me why was it, why was that particular demographic a passion for you to to get in and and deal with their mental health? Well, Corey, the issue for me was um, I had a very challenging upbringing. My mom and dad divorced after 21 years. We were solidly middle class. When dad left, we went to inner city poverty. One income couldn't afford two households. We got the shorter end of the stick. Uh, My oldest sibling and only brother Oscar became my hero. And he was murdered when I was 11. So I was carrying quite a lot of load, um, that backpack and had educators that actually understood it over time. What was going on with me? I was a student with one foot in gifted education and one foot in alternative education, which at the time was kind of perplexing to educators. I tell people, I don't believe it was my IQ scores that made, that got me into gifted education. My grandparents stepped into my life when my dad left or stepped in more so, I should say. And they were farmers. And my grandfather only had a third grade farm school education. But to this day, he's the wisest man I ever met. And I tell people, you might be smarter than me, but you'll never outwork me. My, my grandparents were farmers. There was never a quitting time. You finished when the work was done. So that kind of mentality. And then the other side of alternative education, the gangs, I was gang involved, uh, making really poor decisions. And again, my grandfather, long before I went to a therapist, uh, my grandfather told me, he said, son, I know what the issue is. He said, you don't love life enough to fear death. So he, he said he understood why I was putting myself in harm's way. So it was really important at that point 
that, you know, I started my mom in school put me, I started seeing a psychologist or therapist for that matter. And, um, I used to say, this was a big ripoff. Every time I went, this guy never says anything. I'm the one doing all the talking. It's a ripoff. <laughs> and, then, and then I grew up and I said, you know what? It looked pretty easy. Maybe I'll try to become that guy. That <laughs> <laughs> I'll just sit there. And get my <laughs> right. But, but, but again, it, it was really helpful. And the advice that I give young people today, Corey, is really simple and straightforward. It's uh, a three-E approach. I say, what helped me is I learned to manage my emotions, my ego, and my energy. And when I talk about my emotions, not suppress my emotions, but I learned to manage them. So when I was angry, I learned to sit on my hands, which would force me to use my mouth. And I learned that my mouth was for kind words and not mean-spirited words. When it came to managing my ego is understanding that I'm not the biggest, baddest thing in this world, helping me with humility, helping with me with more uh, healthy self-awareness and managing my energy. And I think being that the new year is coming, this is a really important one because people would set out these lofty goals. I'm going to work out more. I'm going to eat better. And what will happen is they'll say, you know, uh, uh, there's not enough uh, you know, time in a day. When everybody has the same amount of time, it's what we do with our energy that matters. I'm a, I manage my energy, and I'm, I'm a classic introvert. Doesn't mean we're shy; just means we don't get our energy from other people. I love solitude and silence, but I also love people. But I recharge with solitude and silence. So when I learned how to manage my energy, my ego, my emotions, I was told that I could do anything I, that I aspired to do, and that's proven to be true. Well, anyone who has watched you do any of your talks, and I, of course, we will, will give links so people can watch your live talks. That seems very far removed from the introvert to me. <laughs> you be running around the stage like, ah, so if you say so, but okay. Energy management. So, so what, Corey, with a nap, so energy management is really knowing what you have to do. Mm. So, so, so what can throw me off? So I get to meet you today. And then, you know, I plan on working out and kind of chilling out. What would throw me off if someone says, you forgot about another meeting on your schedule? Mm. Because I purposely planned my energy to do certain things. Now, it doesn't mean I can't be flexible, but energy management is huge to me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great that's a great point. I just last week I interviewed, um, he's a former Disney executive, like a legend at, at Disney Corporation. Uh, Lee Cockerell is his name. And um, so he's, you know, really just all about sort of this, even to the point where you plan your morning each day, you know, 15 minutes each day. Like what is, what does today look like? He's like, and he said, we plan our vacations. We plan these big weddings. We plan all these events. But our life is like the biggest event we'll ever really have to manage. And we don't we don't put any planning, usually. Yes. On the day-to-day. And you can plan all day long and and with and put it in little time slots. But just like the fastest car in the world, without any gas, it's not going anywhere. Not going anywhere, yep. That energy, energy, ener- at the end of the day, I wish more people thought about energy management. They, they'd really, you know, if you wanted to work out after work, then that means you have to pace yourself throughout the day. Mm-hmm. It's not just time. It's energy. Yeah. He actually says time management is actually life management. So you guys are like literally 
book ends, which is great because when I hear successful people, you know, that's one great thing about this show. I find these common denominators with successful people. And that's what we give back to our community. And we're like, you know, Hey, these things work. Like, that's right. You know, if the, if the head of Chuck E. Cheese and the head of <laughs> Disney, you know, and now Doc Brown are telling you this. Appreciate you know? it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you know, when it comes to young people though, you have to encourage them, I guess, at a point where they, and I say they meaning we too, when you're young, you don't necessarily think about the future because of the invincibility of youth, right? And we've all been there. So I know with you, when you have the conversation about achieving greatness with young people, and I know you talk to them about creating a legacy. Yes. How do you approach that conversation with the kids who really, they don't see past like the last Taylor Swift album? Well, you know the, what I mean? <laughs> the very first thing you let young people know is that choices have futures. Mm-hmm. That's that's the very first thing you let them know. And secondly, I will say, you want to be very careful to ensure that your older self does not get angry with your younger self for a choice you made that you didn't think through. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of my favorite quotes from you is a different iteration, I guess, of something that someone else who I loved interviewing, uh, Stedman Graham, said to me when I, he was one of my first kind of like you know more bigger names in like the education sector, and um, you know he had a very similar comment. But your quote is so succinct when you say, "Our past is a place of reference, not residence." When I heard that, man, when you said that, like just. Because, oh, I got goosebumps because I know so many of us are stuck in those choices of the past, never get beyond it. And I always feel like you have cheated your future self of what you're supposed to be if you get stuck on what you who you used to be. (laughs) You cheat your future self. But look what you do to relationships when we don't address the rejections of our past. They become projections in our present. So we bleed on people who didn't cut us. Mm. Yeah. Bringing all this baggage, quote unquote. I mean, that's really what that is, you know, in, in a layman's terms, right? That's exactly what it is. Yep. And it could be uh, in the workplace or um, romantic relationships, friendships. And I know I was guilty of that a few times where someone did me wrong. So I'm very bringing all that <laughs> mess into new relationships. Yeah. It then tie that into neuroscience. So anybody that reminds you, if you don't reboot your brain, anyone that reminds you of that person, <laughs> you're likely in any little thing, you're likely to treat that person in a similar fashion as the brain looks for that confirmation bias. I think one of the things that we don't think about enough in our interactions is that everyone is different from us. We go to the ego. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't have treated, I wouldn't have done that. Why did you? No, every single person, whether it's a student, a coworker, a spouse, intimate relations, every single person is different from us. They're not us. And, and that's, that, that's kind of like the crux of, of, of getting things back or not even back, getting things to a point where we're healing together in, in society. We are here today with Dr. Adolph Brown, whose new show is The Parent Test on ABC. Wish you a lot of success with that show. And thanks again for being here today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.